Well, for many weeks now, we have been with the Lord Jesus Christ and His disciples. Uh, the evening before His impending crucifixion, you could put it this way, it's been somewhat of an inside look into uh, this, this time with Jesus and His disciples. Last week, we finished John chapter 15, and we concluded it like this. The Lord Jesus told His disciples, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This is what we referred to last week as the mind-boggling reality. And Jesus made four very important assertions in these two verses. He said, first of all, the Spirit will come. That was a promise. Secondly, the Lord Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would proceed from the Father and the Son. He called the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth. And then he made this astounding statement. He said, the Holy Spirit will bear witness about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with these four assertions that I have labeled the mind-boggling reality, what we run into next is our momentous responsibility. Namely, that Christ followers... Christ followers are called to do exactly what the Holy Spirit does. That is, to bear witness to the great person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, as we move uh, through the Gospel of John, we're going to make it to John chapter 16. I've entitled the message, When the Spirit Comes. When the Spirit Comes. I want to invite you to turn in God's Word to John chapter 16 and stand to your feet. And we will read a, a rather lengthy portion of Scripture this morning and, by God's grace, walk through it together. This is the word of the Lord. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I do not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. May God bless the reading of his word. We join me in a word of prayer. Father, what a, a, a joy and a delight it has been to uh, labor together in this gospel, the gospel of John. And God, as we move forward into chapter 16, I pray that as we learn more about the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, that you would quicken our hearts, that you would awaken us to the truth that lies uh, before us on this day. I pray that you would encourage the people of God. I pray that where conviction needs to do its work, that you would convict the people of God. 
And as this passage teaches that, oh, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, do a mighty work today, that you would uh, engage in a mighty work that would draw someone to yourself. Father, we uh, desire to be submissive to your word, to be surrendered to your word. And I pray that you would now give us great attention, that you'd give us eyes to, to see and ears to hear and hearts that are soft and pliable, that would be ready and willing to receive your truth. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you today for the gospel. We thank you for the spirit that resides in every person who is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now come and do a mighty work so that you would be glorified and your people would be built up, equipped, and encouraged. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This morning, before we dive deeply into this section of scripture... I want to take time to do some uh, introductory groundwork. There's two very important statements I want to make in order to give you a better idea of what's happening in this passage. Uh, The first thing I want to point out is the rationale for the teaching. The rationale for the teaching. Now, Jesus reveals the reason for some of his recent teaching in verse 1. He says, I have said all these things. Stop right there. I have said all these things. Why? To keep you from falling away. The reason I had you stop with all these things is very simple. Because you ask, what are these things? Well, the simple reality is that these things are the immediate context that preceded John chapter 16. These things refer to uh, what Jesus told his disciples in very candid terms that they would be hated by the world, that they would be despised by the world. Why? Because of their allegiance to Christ. The world would hate them because of their aversion to the world. And the world would hate them because of their direct association with the Lord Jesus. And so the reason for Jesus' candid candid remarks in John chapter 15 become very plain now. He understood how difficult these days would be for the disciples. The Lord Jesus Christ knows how difficult it would be in July of 2016. Looking forward, he knew what all the people of God, what they would experience. Now, he understood the vitriol that the world would spew upon his disciples and that it would discourage them. I'm sure there are many in this room today who can say, I've been discouraged because the world has scoffed at me for my faith. I'm discouraged because the world maligns me for my faith. I've been discouraged and defeated because the world uh, marginalizes me. They look at me as, as, as less than they ought, and that is discouraging to me. And so the Lord Jesus Christ understood ultimately that persecution would come to the doorstep of his disciples. And so he revealed this sobering reality to his disciples for a specific purpose. And it's it's drawn out for us in verse 1. He said, "I, I have said these things to you to keep you from what? From falling away. The word, the phrase falling away comes from a Greek term, a skandalizo. And you can almost you can almost imagine what the English word that comes from scandalizo is, is to scandalize, which means to disbelieve permanently. It means to, to stumble or to fall. It means to cease believing in the Christian faith. 
That's why Jesus is telling his disciples these things. Now, this Greek word emerges throughout the New Testament, most notably in Matthew chapter 13, that you know very well. We call it the parable of the soils. Jesus says it like this. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately he does what? He falls away. He falls away. That's the same term that we see emerging in John chapter 16, verse 1. In Matthew 24, 10, we read these words, And many will fall away. That's the same word. Scandalizo. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. In fact, the apostle Peter even uses this word. Peter answered Jesus, Though they all fall away, scandalizo, although they fall away because of you, Lord Jesus, what does Peter say? You remember? I will never fall away. Isn't that interesting? Because of all the disciples save Judas, we know what happened to him. He was unregenerate. He was unconverted. He was a false professor. But with the Apostle Peter, a man who God used in mighty, mighty ways, most notably to write two very important books, the books of First Peter and Second Peter, what do we know about this man? This is a man who for a season fell away. I want to be very clear about something this morning so there's no confusion. I've been in many conversations with, with the folks at Christ Fellowship, and, and no disrespect to some of the traditions you've come from, but some of you come from Roman Catholic backgrounds and are now converted. Some of you come from Nazarene backgrounds and are now converted. Some of you have come from uh, Wesleyan or, or Methodist or Arminian backgrounds and you have become converted to the Christian faith. But one of the things that I've discovered with people who are raised in this kind of a theological climate, and by the way, all of those traditions I just noted believe that you can lose your salvation. Every one of them. Wesleyans, Arminians, Roman Catholics, and there are many more. And so if you've been raised in that theological tradition, what happens is this. You come to a church like Christ Fellowship who believes very strongly in perseverance of the saints. That under, there, there is a, no condition where you can lose your salvation. You bring that baggage with you. And you can say uh, until the cows come home that I believe I won't lose my salvation. But because of that tradition that you were raised with, it becomes more difficult to embrace the truth of God's Word. Now, we're all on a continuum, are we not? Some of you are here and you will wrestle mightily with this doctrine. You say, but pastor, you don't understand. It, it, it just appears that, that some people can lose their salvation. Other people at the other end of the continuum say, yeah, pastor, I was raised with that tradition. I've moved past that now and I affirm with sacred scripture, I can never lose my salvation. So let's be very clear. If the Father elected you in eternity past, and we'll learn much about this as we move into John chapter 17, one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. If the Father elected you, and the Son died for you, and the Holy Spirit applied the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and His benefits to your life, 
Here's the statement I want to make. You are secure. Period. If the Father chose you, if the Son died for you, if the Spirit applied the work of Jesus' benefits on the cross to your life, you are eternally secure. Praise the Lord. Nothing can take your faith away. Romans 8 says it very clear. No circumstance, no person, no demon in hell, not even the devil himself can take your faith away. Your faith, your salvation is indeed rock solid. You may be like a a, a man or a woman or a boy or a girl on a great ship in the middle of the stormy sea. Many of you have been there. Some of you are there right now. You are on this stormy ship in the middle of the the sea and the storm may, may pummel you. The waves may crash against the hole of your boat. You may feel defeated. You may feel discouraged. But rest in this fact. No matter what happens on that ship, no matter how hard it gets on that journey, on the way to the celestial city, you can never, ever, ever, ever be swept overboard. It's it's a theological impossibility. You are safe in the hands of God. And if you're wondering, what's the evidence? Well... It's been, I believe, a couple years ago, we actually taught a Veritas class. It's 12 or 13 weeks focusing on this question alone. Let me give you one verse. Jude 24. Jude says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and great joy. You see, if you wrestle with the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, really what you are wrestling with is the truth of Almighty God. Because Scripture is very plain that your salvation is secure. And so there's a first thing that we need to be very clear of, and that is the rationale of this teaching. But there's a second thing by way of introduction I want to share with you, and that is what I've titled the reminder of the coming persecution. If you're like me, you would say something under your breath, kind of like this. Great. (laughs) The reminder of the coming persecution. Look at verse 2. Jesus says to these men, They will put you out of the synagogue. Uh, Dave Steele revised translation of that verse is, They're going to boot you out, dude. Right? They're going to kick you out of the synagogue. One commentator puts it like this. To be made outcast from the synagogue meant far more than merely being forbidden to attend religious services. See, it means more than just you can't come to church. This commentator says those who were excommunicated from the synagogue were cut off from all religious, social, and economic aspects of Jewish society. They were branded as traitors to their people and their God and faced the the likely consequence of losing both their families and their jobs. It would be like this. If you were booted out of a church in Whatcom County, you wouldn't even feel free to walk down Main Street in Linden. You wouldn't feel free to go to Starbucks because you know all the eyes would be cast upon you. Ah, there's the one that was booted out of the synagogue, you see. Jesus says, secondly, you will be killed, in verse 2, you'll be, you'll, be killed in the, uh, you'll be killed and the murderers will claim to do it in the name of God. How's that? You're booted out of the synagogue 
And then some of these men, Jesus's, will be killed, and the people that killed them will be praised for it. Sound like something that we see happening in our culture today? Before Paul's conversion, when his name was Saul, he carried out this kind of persecution. Would you hold your finger in John chapter 16 and look briefly with me at the book of Acts? Acts chapter 26. And I just want to have you cast your gaze on a few verses here to see the, the intensity of the persecution that the Apostle Paul embraced and carried out. Acts chapter 26, verse 9. Paul, looking back now, says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. Just a footnote, I I have to share. I think I've made comments uh, similar to this in days past. But just remember when you're praying for that son or daughter, just remember when you're praying for that friend at school or that business associate who needs Jesus. This is a person who is a hard-hearted idolater. And you just, you come to the point, if you're like me, where you just, you ever come to the point where you just want to give up praying for that loved one? Just, they are so sinful. Think about the Apostle Paul. One who approved of and engaged in the execution of Christians. Think of it like this. Your worst enemy could be the next Billy Graham one day. The most hardened criminal that you know of could be the next evangelist in the days ahead. The leader of ISIS, that man who dresses in black, could one day be a great theologian in one of our seminaries. Why? Because God is doing a good work in our world. He is drawing his elect to himself. And so in John chapter 16, you see Jesus has an aim. He has a strategy, and that is to encourage his disciples. He not only wants to encourage his disciples, I'm convinced he wants to encourage each of us today. And so in the midst of the horrifying persecution that the disciples would soon face, and in the midst of the horrifying persecution that I believe we will soon face, how does Jesus encourage his disciples? I want to draw your attention to two headings, and these are the the two broad answers to this question today. First, he comforts his disciples in this. He comforts them in their weaknesses. And I want to take a few minutes, a few extended minutes this morning, to to do what I'd like to entitle uh, probing the human heart. Because Jesus understands that we are weak. Jesus understands that the disciples are, 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 are weak men. He understands that our hearts are frail. He understands that, that we are fragile. He understands that in many cases we are fearful. And in and of itself, the heart is all of these things. But add this to the mix, that the persecution is going to strike. I'm already fearful, fragile, 
I'm already struggling with these things, but add this, Jesus says the persecution will hit. And this kind of vitriol, this kind of persecution, even to the most strongest man or woman, could lead that person to the point of just throwing in the towel. And so Jesus comforts his disciples in their weakness. Let me put it this way. Jesus understands them. And Jesus understands you and Jesus understands me. There's three things I want to walk you through. First of all, Jesus understands as he as he gazes at his disciples and as he gazes at us, Jesus understands that the human heart is prone to unbelief. I want to just have you meditate on that for a minute and think about that before you say like the typical evangelical. I don't know, not me. I don't struggle with unbelief. Think a little bit longer. Jesus knows that his disciples have hearts that are prone to unbelief. And Jesus knows that your heart and my heart is prone to unbelief. And why do I know that? Why does Jesus know that? Well, the Bible is filled, literally packed with stories of men and women who battled unbelief. You take Sarah. Sarah, who was barren, she was told along with Abraham that they would bear a child. And we don't have time to get into the details of it, but you remember there is at one point when Sarah laughed. She laughed at God, and God confronted her. Remember she said, I didn't laugh. God says, oh, yes, you did. This woman who was barren did not believe for a season that God would come through in the clutch for her. Jonah, you remember, battled with unbelief when he called Jonah to, to go and preach the word of God to the Ninevites. What did Jonah do? He went in the opposite direction. You remember Thomas in the New Testament battled unbelief. We'll see this when we come to John chapter 20. Now the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. He had been raised three days later from the grave. And he stands before Thomas. And Thomas battles unbelief as the risen Christ stands before him. Of course, Peter battled unbelief. Not only as he sank as after Jesus did the miracle of having him walk on the water, he battled unbelief as he denied the Lord Jesus Christ before Jesus' crucifixion. And of course, we all know the disciples corporately battled unbelief. You see, the Bible recognizes that sinful people like you and me will wrestle with unbelief. And that's why we have warnings in the New Testament. In Hebrews 3, 7 and 8, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Later in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, the writer says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Jesus understands that the human heart is prone to unbelief, but he also understands that the human heart is prone to wander. You see, the, the human heart, I don't know if you thought about it this way, the human heart is not neutral. There is no such thing as a, a neutral human heart. And by the way, if you're thinking deeply about this subject, I'm going to open up a can of worms and close it really quickly. Many of you know I'm passionate about the notion of free will. <laughs> when you think about the human heart not being neutral, that will affect your view of free will. You see, there are two options. 
Jonathan Edwards observes this in his unbelievable book, Religious Affections. He says, true religion in great part consists in holy affections. You've read the book. That's the thesis of the book. And so the heart is doing one of two things. The heart is either pursuing God. The heart is either pursuing God or it's prone to wander. The heart is either pursuing God or it's prone to wander. And the pastoral application of this is very plain. Where are you today? Are you pursuing God? Is the word of God important to you? Is praying to God important to you? Is plugging out at the local church important to you? Is getting involved in ministry important to you? Is sharing your faith important to you? Is intimacy with God important to you? Is the gospel important to you? Or are you prone to wander? Are you prone to doing your own thing? Are you prone to selfishness and pride and struggling with this this hard recalcitrant heart? Here's what we've all experienced. We've all experienced this. The heart can be soft toward the things of God. And when your heart is soft toward the things of God, I believe that's when you're truly happy. When your heart is soft to the things of God, that's when you are truly content. It doesn't mean that pain leaves your life. It doesn't mean that adversity leaves your life. But it does mean this. You are resting in the sweet sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Others of you have hearts that are hard and stubborn and recalcitrant. Simply put, the heart is prone to wander. One of my favorite hymns is the hymn, uh, Come Thou Fount, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And there's a line in the hymn that I think is very instructive. Kind of want to sing it, but I think Jason would go, dude, don't do it. So I'm going to read it. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Does anyone feel that? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Jesus understands that the human heart is prone to unbelief. He understands that our hearts are prone to wander. Now think about the disciples. He understands a third thing, not only about the disciples, but about you and I. He understands that the human heart is prone to sorrow. Look at verse 6. He says, But because I have said these things to you, there it is again, these things. What is Jesus referring to? Well, think about the context. In the immediate context, which we've already discovered, these things about the danger of falling away, I say these things to keep you from falling away, they're going to put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, some of you will be killed. And then in chapter 15, the world is going to hate your guts. These things I have said to you, he goes on to say, sorrow has filled your heart. Really? Really? So what I want to do this morning is, is, is to get real with you. Is if we learn these realities from our Savior, it shouldn't surprise us if sorrow enters our hearts. Jonathan Edwards says this, 
The Holy Scriptures do everywhere place religion very much in the affections, that is, in our hearts, such as fear, hope, love, hatred, desire, joy, listen, sorrow, gratitude, compassion, and zeal. The greatest preacher that ever walked on planet earth outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, in my humble opinion, was a Baptist, of course. His name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. A famous preacher in London, England, he's one that probably 90% or more of you have heard of or know something about. There's nothing that bothers me more, by the way, Linda, that when I talk to someone in England, and I, I typically will say, have you heard of my hero? Oh, who is it? I say, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Never heard of him. It's like, oh, kidding me. How can that be? This mighty man of God, this expositor of the word of God, this man with thousands and thousands and thousands of books in his library, this man who took on the heretics of the day, this man who faithfully led literally thousands of people to Jesus, is a man who wrestled his whole life with sorrow. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Here's one of the things that Spurgeon said. He said, I am the subject of depression of spirit, so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. Spurgeon? Now here's what this does for me. As someone who wrestles with melancholy or anxiety or fear from time to time, as I've shared very candidly, I like to hear that a mighty man of God like Spurgeon wrestled with something that I wrestle with. Is anyone with me? That, that brings comfort to my soul. Well, then you read further. He says this, The road to sorrow has been well trodden. It is the regular sheep track to heaven. That's worth writing down. It's the regular sheep track to heaven. And all the flock of God have had to pass along it. He says, quite involuntarily, unhappiness of mind, depression of spirit, and sorrow of heart come upon you. You may be without any real reason for grief, and yet may become among the most unhappy of men, because for the time your body has conquered your soul. He says, spiritual sorrows are the worst of mental miseries. He says, when life is like a foggy day, and Linda, you know what that's like as someone who knows London. Life is like a foggy day when providence is cloudy and stormy and you are caught in a hurricane, when your soul is exceedingly sorrowful and you are bruised as a cluster trodden in the wine press, yet cling close to God and never let go of your reverent fear of him. However exceptional and, and unusual your trial may be, yet with Job whisper these words, Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. The causes of sorrow are many, as most of you know. The circumstances of life 
can cause sorrow. I think I've been to the chiropractor maybe four times since moving to Whatcom County, which is a record with me. And I remember the last time I was in excruciating pain. And I went to the chiropractor and he uttered these words. Hey, Dave, what happened? I said, I have no idea. He said, you didn't fall? Nope. You weren't playing football? Nope. You weren't involved in professional wrestling? Nope. I mean, you didn't do anything. Your wife didn't beat you up? Nope. Everything's good. He said, do you know that more than 50% of the people that I see have no idea what happened? And so sorrow can be caused by the, the everyday events of life. Or it can be a ca- caused by something extreme like the death of a loved one, by desertion, by financial loss, by job loss, by disappointment in life, by guilt over our sin. This is something I've been struck with. I can speak very candidly and transparent with you. These are the things that get pastors in trouble. Would you look around this morning? Just feel free. Look around. Look, look behind you. And what do you see? You see a bunch of really good-looking people, right? The women are very pretty. Most of the guys are very handsome. Most, not all, right? I'm kidding. Y'all look so good. And now think about beyond Christ Fellowship. Think about local churches in Washington and all over America and all around the world. And I mean, be really honest. Aren't, we're put together, are we not? We look good. We smell good. Things are going great. When you see someone in the mall and you ask them how they're doing, what do they always say? Well, at this church, they say better than I deserve, right? But a lot of people say, I'm doing great. Doing great. I used to be in a network marketing business. I won't tell you which one. You can guess. 25 years ago. Never sold anything. You know, maybe two things. And I would see people and they would say, how's business? Oh, red hot and rolling. That's what I was taught to say. Red hot and rolling, right? And people think, man, he's rolling in the dough. I'm like, I haven't sold one bottle of soap. Right? How you doing? Doing great. Here's the bottom line. Aren't we just a bunch of screw-ups? Pastors are not supposed to say these kinds of things. But think about this. Are we not, if we're really honest, we are broken. Some of you are battling depression. Some of you have had thoughts of suicide. Some of you are incredibly lonely. Some of you are confused about the future. Young people don't know, will I get married? Who will I marry? What will he look like? What will she look like? I don't know where to go to college. I don't know if I'll be able to pay for college. What will life be like on my own? Parents, you worry about your children. Some of you lay awake at night wondering what your children are doing and what they will do in the future. You're worried about your finances. Yet we look around and we say, we all look so great. We are sweet. But if we're really honest, and it's very interesting because this congregation is a very non-responsive congregation, I have to tell you, unless Spence is here. Thank God for Spence, (laughs) the oldest man on our softball team, and he is a winner. He's going to turn 84. Does anyone know when? It's coming up. A few days. So let's make sure to wish him happy birthday. But are we not broken, broken people? Let's dispense with the notion 
as Christians, as evangelicals, that we have our act together. Do you know, I don't know one person who has their act together. We think everyone has their act together. Why? Because when you see them in the mall, you say, how you doing? Doing great. Haven't sold anything in years, but doing great, right? So let's dispense with the notion that everything is perfect in our lives. And let me lead you through a very short process that I hope would be instructive and helpful for you. Let me be so bold to suggest a way forward for all of us who are broken. Number one, admit, admit, that's what you admit. If you're depressed, admit it. Some of you say, I don't like that word depression. I'm discouraged. It doesn't matter what you call it. Just admit you're discouraged. Admit you're depressed. Admit you struggle with fear. Admit that you're lonely. Admit that you're broke. Admit that you are, you name whatever it is. Secondly, acknowledge now. Once you lay it on the table, acknowledge your dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we're good as Americans. Years and years ago it was, I'm going to go to Barnes & Noble and find the answer. No one does that anymore. You just Google it, right? And you know more than your doctor. You know more than your counsel. You know more than your pastor. You know more than your your, uh, electrician friend, right? How to rewire the house. Ah, now I can do it. Acknowledge now your dependence on Jesus. Number three, ask for help. Whether it's your spouse, whether it's your, your buddy whether it's your, your pastoral team or elders, whether it's your, your friends at work, someone who is a Christ follower, ask for help. And finally, I want to encourage you to think through the matters of that the pertain to assurance. Remember to trust in the gospel promises. Remember key verses like 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to to do what? To forgive us. See what I said? Non-responsive congregation. To forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Cling to those gospel promises. Trust those gospel promises. And so here On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus not only comforts his disciples in their weaknesses, and those weaknesses are very similar, if not identical, to our weaknesses. But he also does a second thing. He convinces them that his departure is for their good. Now, imagine this with me now. Imagine this. The disciples have been told the world is going to hate them. They'll be booted out of the synagogue. They'll be killed, and the killers will be celebrated for it. Their hearts are weary. Their hearts are filled with worry. And now Jesus moves on to set this second proposition before them to encourage them. He moves forward in his quest to encourage his disciples by convincing him that his departure, which is right around the corner, is for their good. I, I racked my brain all week for an illustration. I couldn't come up with one until, I'm going to thank Jason. I don't know what the song did, but we're singing the song, and this illustration popped in my mind. And here's the illustration. Jesus tells his disciples, my departure is for your good. It would be like this. You take your five-year-old to the hospital to have very serious surgery. 
And as every five-year-old will be, or every 49-year-old, they'll be scared to death, right? Sight of a needle, the sight of blood, walking into the hospital, woo, right? Five-year-old scared to death, and so mommy and daddy are standing with the five-year-old. They're holding their, their child's hand. And then the doctor says, it's time for the anesthesiologist to arise and administer that portion of the medical procedure so your child falls asleep. And the, the father says to the son, now son, mommy and daddy need to go to the waiting room right now so the doctors can take care of you. No, don't leave me, daddy. No, but we have to leave. If we don't leave, the doctors can't take you to surgery. We can't go into the surgery room. If We don't leave. They can't fix you. That's similar. It's not perfect, but it's similar to what's happening in John chapter 16. Jesus says that if he doesn't leave, the Holy Spirit can't come. Verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Can you imagine if you were among the disciples? If if it were me, I would be going, no, 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 Jesus, hold on. Stop. Stop the boat. Hold on. The story is all messed up. But Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not Come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. There are benefits of Jesus' departure, and the first is that if Jesus goes away now, the helper will come. Now, we've seen this term helper before, have we not? This comes from the Greek word, the Greek word parakletos or paraclete. The helper is the Holy Spirit. The helper is the the comforter, the exhorter, the counselor, the comforter. We first saw this in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, where Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. And then we learned about the parakletos in verses 25 and 26 of John chapter 14, where Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that while I am with you, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so the first benefit is if Jesus goes away, this is, ult- this is the ultimate case of being counterintuitive, right? If Jesus goes away, the helper will come. There's a second benefit that when the Spirit comes, when the Spirit comes, Scripture says he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit is one that must be, in my estimation, that needs to be emphasized and understood. The word here for convict comes from the Greek word that means to reprove someone. It, it, it means to expose someone. It means to show someone their fault. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit will do, Jesus says, when he comes, is he will convict the world concerning sin, Righteousness and judgment. There are two primary means now that the Holy Spirit uses to convict the world. The first primary means is one that may have escaped your attention, and that is the conscience. The Spirit of God will use the conscience. One writer says that the the conscience is the sole 
reflecting upon itself. There's a thinker. The soul reflecting on itself. John MacArthur refers to the conscience as the soul's automatic warning system. I really like that. Young people, remember that. The conscience is the soul's automatic warning system. And so when you're in a situation with a friend and the friend says, Hey, let's go do X, Y, Z. Your conscience goes, Right? It's the soul's automatic warning system. And because you're filled with the Spirit, you say to your buddy, Hey, guess what? I'm out of here. Because I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen to my conscience. The conscience now, John MacArthur says, is not to be equated with the voice of God or the law of God. Rather, it is a human faculty that judges our actions and thoughts by the light of the highest standard we perceive. When we violate our conscience, it condemns us, triggering feelings of shame, anguish, regret, consternation, anxiety, disgrace, and even fear. So in the counseling room, when someone comes to me and says, this is what I've done, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and it's all bad, typically the counselor will say, oh, you should not feel any shame. You should not feel any disgust. You should not feel any of these things. The biblical counselor says, you should feel horrible. Right? You have sinned before an almighty God. And now the biblical counselor is charged with this task. Tell the counselee, run to the cross. You should feel horrible. Now run to the cross and have all your sins forgiven. But if there is no pain, if there is no regret, if there is no uh, a fear, why would anyone need to go to the cross? I can just read the latest self-help book, you see. And so we, we, we confront the things in our life. We're honest with the things in our life, and then we flee to the cross. There's a second means of conviction that the Spirit will use, and that is the Word of God, of course. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And in one of many, many passages, Paul the Apostle says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. And you all must have your Kindles today. I don't see any, I don't hear any pages turning. Would you do that with me? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Paul the Apostle says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove. By the way, that's the word that we see in John chapter 16 for convict, which is a ministry of the Spirit. Rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. As we have shared many times, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform the people of God. And to be very candid with you, some of my charismatic friends place a, an unhealthy emphasis on the Spirit of God and they sidestep the Word of God. Then the Spirit of God is hindered from doing His sovereign work. Some of our friends, some of our more conservative Baptist friends, minimize the role of the Spirit and we exalt the Word of God and we make the mistake in the opposite direction. What's the answer? The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform the people of God. We don't minimize anything. And so Jesus proceeds now to articulate with greater clarity the ministry of the Spirit in these remaining verses. He says when the Spirit comes, He's going to focus His attention on the world. 
The Spirit will come. He will convict the world. Next week, as we look at our next verses, verses 12 to 15, we will see that the Spirit will turn His attention to the church. To the church. But for today, we see that the Spirit, Jesus says, will convict the world. Three things. First, concerning sin. Why? Because they don't believe in me. The Holy Spirit convicts unbelievers in the world of the sin of sailing to believe in Jesus. Some of you can remember the day that happened. For me, it was I was seven years old. I went to Lively Lambs at Lacey Baptist Chapel, and I heard for the probably 5,000th time that I was a sinner and I was on my way to hell, and I'd had it. I came home, and I got to my knees, and I admitted to God that I was a sinful person that I was on my way to hell, that I would receive the just penalty for all my sins. And yes, I said it just like that. And asked the Lord Jesus if he would forgive me of all my sins, past, present, and future. And he did. And the journey has been quite a ride from that day to this day currently. Here's the bottom line. Failing to believe in Jesus' work on the cross for your sins will have eternal Consequences that will reach culmination in eternal judgment in hell. Jesus proceeds. He says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, Jesus makes the opposite point. He says one must not only believe in Jesus for salvation, the person must also receive the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit makes this plain to all of God's elect. Finally, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment. Why? Because the ruler of this world is judged. Who is the ruler of this world? The God of this age, as Paul the Apostle says, is the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The ruler of this world is Satan, who has already been judged at the cross. His doom is sealed, ultimately, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. But the warning to each of us is this. Every boy, every girl, every man, every woman must repent. We must repent. If Satan could not get off the hook, what right do we think that we will ever escape the judgment of God? Here's the truth point. Jesus encourages his disciples by comforting them in their weaknesses and convincing them that his departure is for their good. Now, here's the amazing thing. Is we now, over 2,000 years into the future, we live on the other side of all these promises that the Lord Jesus made to his disciples. The promise that Jesus made concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit is now our present reality. J.D. Greer wrote a book called Jesus Continued. I want to give the subtitle, if you're interested in checking this out. Jesus Continued. The subtitle is, Why the Spirit Inside You is Better Than the Jesus Beside You. Boy, I saw the title of that book and I thought, I've got to read it. It is an absolute grand slam. Here's what J.D. Greer says. He says, The primary objective of God's Spirit is to complete the mission. To know Him is to be devoted to that mission. Without Him, we cannot hope to succeed. With Him, we cannot fail. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
He has given us this mandate. The mandate is to bear witness to the Son. And the Holy Spirit, as we learned last week, will empower us in this mandate. He will give us the words to say. He will help bring Scripture to memory. Only the Scripture we have memorized, right? He will empower us to spread the gospel all around the world. I want to conclude this morning with some words of a man who has highly influenced me. We've already heard some of those words, but I want to challenge you with a few words from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And I pray that for some of you, you will be deeply encouraged. For others of you, you will be challenged beyond measure. Here's what he says. If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep the good news to yourself. You will be whispering it into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a total silent tongue about him. If you really know Christ, you are like the one who has found honey. And you will call others to taste of its sweetness. You are like a beggar who has discovered an endless supply of food. You must go and tell the hungry crowd that you have found Jesus and that you are anxious that they should find him too. And here's the sentence that gripped me and I pray that it will grip every one of you as well. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ, or else you do not love him at all. Let's pray together. Our Father, right now I pray that your spirit would uh, do a, a sovereign, a merciful, and a kind work in many, many hearts. God, if there's someone here who has never repented of their sin, may you do a mighty work of grace, perform a mighty work of grace on that heart. And I pray that that person, that boy or girl, that man or that woman would leave uh, a child of God this morning. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Christ, the Bible is very clear to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Would you admit to God that you are a sinful person? Admit that you have failed to find your satisfaction in God. Rather, you found your satisfaction in people or possessions or money or hobbies or whatever it might be. And you realize that apart from Jesus, you would spend all of eternity in hell. And so cry out to him and tell him that you're a sinner. Tell him that you need him. Tell him that you want to be a disciple a follower of the king of the universe. And Lord, for the rest of us, whether there needs to be uh, words of encouragement, uh, words of challenge, words of edification, whatever it might be, God, Holy Spirit, do a, a, a sovereign and merciful work in hearts this morning. May we relate this morning to all the uh, that the disciples were going through. May we uh, get in their sandals, so to speak, and understand that their, their hearts were sorrowful for all that Jesus had said. 
God, there's so much that they missed as they uh, failed to see that the coming Holy Spirit would indwell them permanently, would empower them to uh, spread the word of the gospel all around the world. And we thank you that we have that promise today. Thank you that the Holy Spirit has come in great power and resides in the hearts of the followers of Christ. Now, may we heed the, the, uh, the words and the, the challenge of Charles Haddon Spurgeon to spread the gospel here in our community and around the world. Would you be so kind to give us the, the courage, the boldness to do just that? For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning that the disciples were broken men. They were sorrowful men. And I hope you've come to the place where you can honestly confess, I don't have my act altogether. I struggle. I have weaknesses. I, I battle sin on a daily basis. I want to leave this scripture with you as a way to encourage you. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul says, And we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. May broken people, may broken Christ followers realize that the Spirit of God is conforming us into the image of Christ. It's a work that will be completed at the moment of our glorification. We have so much to be thankful for, so much to be filled with joy over. Let's leave with those thoughts in mind. Now, Father, uh, thank you for the good work that is ongoing in our lives. Some of us are just getting started in the Christian life, and some of us are, are close to uh, the day where we'll see the celestial city. Wherever we are in that continuum, God, may we realize that your spirit is conforming us into the image of Christ. There are no negotiations. There is nothing to argue about. This is the truth that emerges in the pages of Scripture. This is reality for us. And so would you be so kind to encourage your people today? For we as broken people need your help. We need your guidance. We need your assistance. We need the peace that comes from the Holy Spirit. Send us on our way with great power now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And you are sent. Have a great day.